Hello and welcome to Halftime Scholars, the series that features the interesting work of independent and emerging researchers. On this episode, we speak with Ryan Payne from the Queensland University of Technology. Ryan's work explores the intersection of technology and privacy. His research looks at the concept of adapting the price of goods based on biometrically tracking the customer in real time. Ryan's work offers a unique perspective on the future of retail and consumer behavior, but also raises important questions about the balance between convenience and privacy in our increasingly technologically driven world. Ryan, welcome to Halftime Scholars. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Thanks, it's lovely to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about your research journey before your PhD and a bit of a background, how you got to this point? I think like everybody finished high school and went straight to university. I had a little bit of a break. I did the backpacking through Europe. I'm from North America, so we would do like your gap year, backpack through Europe for a little bit, having fun, eating all the good delicious foods and stuff like that. Went back to university. I did a business degree. I worked in finance for a bit. I worked as a financial broker, um, capital fundraising. Really enjoyed it. When the market was shifting to public traded fashion stocks, they said, hey, you're well-dressed and we need somebody who understands trading as well as fashion. And we want some guys on the team. Could you be one of them? So I worked on the Hong Kong Fashion Exchange. And I realized I actually enjoyed fashion more than anything. So I actually left uh, my job and went back and did a master's in fashion design, which I know at the time, my parents, my family, my friends, everyone thought it was crazy. Especially my boss is like, you're giving up a great job. You're giving up a job. A million people would kill for this job and you're giving it up. But I like my heart was more into the fashion industry. So I did that. And uh, it turned out to be really, really well. I got a job working for a few different celebrities and a few different major fashion brands. Um, I interned at Christian Dior. Um, I designed for Gucci for a little bit and produced runway shows for Dolce Gabbana, Burberry, um, a whole bunch of big name brands. I actually got a job working as a personal shopper in London. And that's actually what led me to my PhD is online profiling of people. As I knew that I could figure out who my customers were and I knew for their shopping habits to know what to offer. And sometimes the luxury goods, we would change the price based on who the customer was, if you knew that they could afford it or they couldn't. And so I thought, hmm, I wonder if you could do that in computer-based setting. And that actually led into my topic of online biometric privacy shopping. Wow. So that's a really diverse, I guess, unique segue into finding an opportunity through fashion and into a PhD, which is with tech oriented and more science and I guess uh, part of the STEM area of research. So that's really interesting. So I can see how product aspect and the consumer aspect and the understanding the customer aspect would help in this setting. If you maybe delve a little bit more deeper to your PhD itself, you can maybe talk about the process, the methodology you're adopting, how it's panning out in terms of what exactly you're researching. Is it a specific sector in general. So maybe if you can broad speak about your topic itself. I think all academics, you have the really good elevator pitch version, and then you have to dig really, really deep into some needle points contributions. So the bigger idea was what I research is biometric consumer behavior. And what that is teaching artificial intelligence programs to recognize facial expressions, consideration, engagement, how much you really are passionate about something. And the computer can then actually recognize your facial expressions through your webcam or through typing your speed or any different biometric tracking behavior. And then actually can change the price of goods in live time to match your willingness to purchase. So the more that you show that you want something, the more expensive the price could become. This could be through facial tracking using your webcam. It can also be the typing speed that you do, or it could be using your mouse and how fast you click through different things. There's a lot of different ways that computers can actually monitor engagement and consideration. My research is specifically looking in the participatory pricing literature. Try and say that three times fast. Participatory pricing literature. 
at using facial tracking, specifically eye tracking, to measure pupil dilation and how people respond to then change the price of goods. My research then looks at the privacy implications of that and how people would respond if that pricing technology was used in real life. Well, as you said, it's a mouthful. I won't attempt it to say that, but it's really fascinating and a lot of questions popped into my head. If you maybe take a step further, if you can speak to, you alluded to the privacy aspect, but maybe if you, if you go one step back, is the setting purely online? Can you apply this in a retail? Customer walks into a retail store. Can this technology be potentially used? Is that something you could maybe speak to? When I started looking at this, it was actually coming from an offline perspective, actually in, re- in a fashion retail store. I worked at Suffrage's department store, which is a giant department store. It's at the time, it's the number one department store in the world. It's like a Harrods, if you know London, David Jones, if you're an Australian, David Jones on steroids. We do $2.1 billion out of a single store or 4.2 billion pounds across the entire chain. Um, it's only got six stores, but it's a, a massive store. My research could be used online through, like I said, different um, technology bases, but it can also be used offline through CCTV cameras, Or one of the things they're starting to look at doing, electronic price tags. So when you're in uh, CVS or Tesco or Kohl's and you go to buy toothpaste, the price can actually be looking at you to say, oh, let's see what you're looking at. So while that price amount might change that time in front of you, it can actually recognize how you're doing. The other way this research can be used is when you do self-checkouts. Every time you scan carrots, it can look at your face. And if you go to a self-checkout now, Woolies, Kohl's, Tesco, Sainsbury, all of the different self-checkouts actually have little cameras and they actually are recording your face. So it actually can measure micro expressions to see how you respond going forward with it. If you're smiling when you're buying those carrots, the computer can say, hey, we know that you're really engaged and you're probably happy with the price you're paying. You actually notice the self-checkouts actually have little facial cameras. And so they can actually measure when you're buying your carrots and your salad and hopefully a little bit of chocolate, how your face is actually micro smiling or micro frowning. And they can then aggregate that data across 10,000 or a million customers and say, hey, when people are spending $2 for carrots or a dollar for carrots, they're happy. So therefore, they're okay with the price. We can maybe try raising the price, you know, 10 or 15%, which over a million customers makes a considerable amount of additional profit. Likewise, if everyone's sort of getting a micro frown when they look at the price, they can say, okay, don't increase that price. Let's look what other attributes people are happy with or willing to spend more money. And I think that's a really interesting idea is that people often think about technology and just online like Amazon or ordering plane tickets or different things in that context. But the same idea can be used in CCTV cameras to measure people offline to look at how they're smiling or frowning as they walk through the streets. So if you're looking at a mental health aspect or in a retail setting, when they're shopping up and down the aisles of a grocery store or even a clothing store. That's really a fascinating way to the organization to potentially, you know, increase their revenue and use it as a part of their business. I had another question, a sort of a follow-up question in that sense. This is probably more a general, I guess, your view around. So, you know, potentially we measure this at Kohl's or at Woolies at the point of checkout that point, to some degree, the customer has made decision in that setting, either purchase this basket of goods. Is there something to say that at the shelves itself that this technology can be applied? Or is that going a step too far, you reckon, in the overall privacy and the experience of, from a customer point of view? No, we're totally in sync in our thinking. And actually, in my research, I was actually curious if you could do it live in front of the customer in an online or an offline context. It's not so much in Australia, but actually in the UK right now, in Tesco and Sainsbury, they're actually doing electronic or digital based prices. So right now we have little slips of paper you see at the grocery store. In the UK and parts of America, such as CVS stores, they actually have digital prices. 
And behind that little, what looks like an analog price is actually a little recorder that actually captures micro expressions. And so because technology is becoming incredibly cheap now and the ability to buy 10,000 little micro recorders and put them in a store is no longer cost prohibitive, is actually really cost effective. You're actually starting to see that now happen in a lot of offline context inside of stores. So when you're walking down the store and you go to grab a bag of chips or you're like, okay, which am I going to look at? It can actually line by line or shelf by shelf inside a grocery store or behind maybe a changing mirror at a clothing store. It can actually look at you when you're checking clothing out. And so it can actually measure micro facial expressions. So it's no longer just at the price of purchase or the point of purchase. It's actually when you're in the store, when you're looking at the price tags, even measuring people when they enter and leave the store. They were actually, one of the things that's curious is actually the science of why we buy it by Paco Underhill. It's a really good book. It talks about how if you can figure out if a customer's mood entering the store, you then know how to approach them. So you're actually starting to see now in some of the stores, they actually measure micro expressions and through beacon technology, they can customize the advertisements they push on people. So when you walk into a Burberry store in the Regent Street in London, and it can actually measure your facial expressions and then register that against your cell phone where you have um, the Burberry app and say, okay, we know what, what you've purchased. So the visual ads will show products that you might consider purchasing. But because it's measured your face, it tells sales associates, hey, go talk to this person or here's different ways to approach them and actually can categorize people into eight or nine different aspects. So this is a happy, jolly-go-luck customer or, hey, this person's really mad, so proceed with caution or they look confused, so offer support. And so it's a new way of actually being able to customize the service you offer in a physical offline capacity using digital technology. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I think the other piece to this is also it shows us how the evolution in terms of the customer retail or sales experience is happening right in front of us as we go along with more technology coming in. So that's really fascinating. The other question I had was around, we spoke broadly about retail stores in the UK and Australia and the US and maybe fashion to some degree. What do you feel is the wider applicability? Fashion and retail and certain other consumer goods, not everything is impulse buying a car or buying something that has more emotive, I guess, value to the customer. That might be some purchase that doesn't happen in an instant or the decision is not made instantaneously. How do you see this technology is transferred to other areas or other sectors or the types of purchases customers would be doing? Yeah, you know, I actually went outside of even the business privacy purchasing context. I answer the question in two parts. I think that we'll see in larger or higher involvement-based products, such as cars or even houses, you could measure, okay, what attributes do people actually look for in a car? Surprisingly, cup holders. There's a really famous study that they asked, they designed a whole bunch of different cars, iterations of the same car. And ironically, the more cup holders, the more satisfied customers were with the car. It wasn't the speed. It wasn't fuel efficiency. It wasn't even the look of it. It was, can I put my change in one cup holder and my keys in another one and then have room for a coffee cup or have the coffee from yesterday and then have room for the coffee today? And so I think it was 13 cup holders for four seats was sort of the ironic number that people were looking for in a Toyota uh, 4Runner. But I also thought about taking this outside of participatory pricing or out of a retail setting and actually putting it into a mental health context and psychological research. What happens if you can measure people's general facial expressions in their day-to-day -day lives? 
we can actually create a quota or a happiness score for society and sort of be able to measure how are people in general feeling. It's a little scary to think about, but we're now seeing CCTV cameras in a lot of different places in society. And they were advanced for security and for safety-based metrics. We see them at the subway. We see them down major retail streets or major corridors of pedestrian traffic. But we're also starting to see them now in traffic, measuring people's expressions as they go through tolls, or even just general in classroom settings. I wonder if we could actually then do that to measure micro-expressions or just general facial tracking to see how people are feeling. And if you recognize a person is generally smiling throughout the day, and then, for instance, they show major negative emotion, that could actually be shown to trigger maybe a proactive call or proactive measure in a health capacity for someone to reach out and say, hey, we noticed that you're normally really doing well. You seem to be under the weather. And a primary care expert could actually reach out and offer that initial step or easy one-step fix or first primary care touch points. Wait until somebody's in major depression or they're showing severe, uh, high severity of symptoms. So I think that this is actually something we're starting to see that goes from a security aspect of having CCTV cameras, and then that's moved into now a retail setting. But going forward, I think that we actually could see this in a lot of other ideas. Likewise, in the education sector, if you can measure consideration and engagement and cognitive load, you can actually use it as an educator to figure out your lecture. If anybody's lecturing, if any of my PhD pals are, are lecturing, you have a class of 400 students. You know, do they understand what you're saying? Or are they all befuddling and going through with it? Are they bored? Are they actually engaged? If you could get a metric score, maybe have a dial from zero to 100, like where is the classroom measurement of engagement or understanding? You could have a dashboard to tell you that. You could then customize your education live in front of them. So if the class is really engaged but doesn't understand, you could go through a lot more examples or give you know, really funny jokes and create mental hooks for people to remember it. If the class isn't engaged, but they understand, you can speed up the concept. You don't need to belabor this something everyone understands already. You're wasting time that you could spend on other or more complex concepts. So I think there's a lot of different aspects we'll see facial tracking and especially micro eye tracking being used for in the future. But in all of these, there becomes a lot of implications for privacy as well as privacy invasion. At what point do we say, thank you for these potential benefits, but what are the negative implications of that? Yeah, that is quite fascinating. And I think, as you mentioned, there is a wide area of applicability, especially in the multidisciplinary nature of studies, for example. There is so many avenues which one could take that down in terms of research. And then in terms of industry also, there is a wide range of applicability. That's really interesting. Uh, we'll talk a bit more about the privacy aspect and the negative aspects as well going as we move along. But if you could maybe, coming back to your PhD study itself, if you can talk the exact structure of your PhD and the methodology you're adopt, adapting to go through the specific research. I'm looking at three different studies, and I'm a little bit further along. I've just submitted my, I've done my final seminar, and I'm just getting ready to submit my thesis for external review. So I'm almost near the end, or what I think is the end, but it's like a sunset. You think you're at the end, but it just keeps going and going and going. There's always something on the horizon. So I looked at three different studies. I did a preliminary qualitative study, and I asked in an interview context what people value in online shopping, 
where they think about facial tracking and did a lot of open-ended questions to just gather attributes that people might care about. Then I actually did online survey and I lucked out. I did one Facebook post and it snowballed to get roughly over 8,000 responses to Likert scale based questionnaire. So one to five, one to seven, how do you feel about different aspects? And I measured different forms of privacy as well as different ideas about self-esteem, self-efficacy, a lot of different social science-based things. And what that did was give me a really wide range of attributes to look for. I know you get told by your supervisors to really focus at the beginning, but I was curious, what are the attributes that might influence those traditional business privacy aspects? And I lucked out that actually self-efficacy proved to be a really important thing. So in my second study, I then measured if it was because of some technology that I developed that actually did do facial tracking and actually does change the price based on eye tracking or if it was just online behaviors in general. Is it just general online privacy concern? And so I was able to outline that. In my third study, I found that specifically self-efficacy in a global context, not a technology context, proved to be really important upon biometric privacy concerns. So I looked at privacy knowledge, privacy invasion, privacy concerns, biometric privacy, biometric concerns, a whole bunch of 17 different forms of privacy. And ironically, it was global self-efficacy. So your general sense of being able to handle situation when specific biometric contexts were outlined proved to be the most important. So not people's ability to handle technology, not people's general privacy concerns, but specifically outlining if I measured your face at the airport, if I measured your typing speed, do you use online banking where your face is tracked at self-checkouts? Do you see your face being tracked? Not just would you be okay if the price changed at a self-checkout. I found a very specific set of examples. And so then I actually dug deeper into an additional study to actually look at those specific attributes to find out what influences people using or not using biometric tracking or would allow for biometric tracking. And then I was able to sort of create a specific case usage to outline when and where and how uh, retailers might be able to use that. But also in a privacy context, what types of privacy matter? One of the things that comes out of it is this privacy paradox. Everybody says they care about privacy. However, numerous, numerous times, there's a guy in 2006, John Barnes, and he outlines that for up to $7, people will sell their privacy. And I think we see a cookie tracking. It asks, do you accept the cookies? And everyone just says, yes, accept. They don't even bother to check what it's tracking. They just accept it going forward. And so my research is sort of recognizing that we ask privacy and we say it matters, but what specific types of privacy? So my last study was by focusing on that and outlining it. So that's sort of, I guess, the specific outline of my three studies going forward and, and what I was trying to accomplish. I didn't know that when I started. Originally, I'd planned to do three qualitative studies and then at the end do a fourth quantitative just to confirm it. But I realized that because the aspects of what I was looking at were so varied that I needed very early on to come up with really hard constructs, hard correct variables, and then outline specifically what variables matter in what contexts. So that's why I went to quantitative studies very quickly. Yeah, so it looks like a quite a comprehensive study. And I think, as you mentioned, the study itself has changed from its original design and the findings are also quite relevant. We'll talk about a, a little bit more around the findings and the, the paradox itself. But I had this question, as you said, maybe this sort of leads into the privacy conversation broadly. There is no such thing as a single concept of privacy. Everything is a trade-off in 
as you said, the cookies, buying something online or browsing the web for some sports goods. We are leaving that trail and everything is being shared and in different forums. And the more and more that technology is evolving, the notion of privacy has also evolved. What do you feel that, in your opinion, the consumer or the technology that is changing, what do you feel? Is there a point where the customer or people would generally accept that this is part of our general way things are? Or, or do you think that with this explosion of technology and different privacy concerns, would you think that it could not swing back the other way, but change or course correct to some degree? Yeah, I think that one of the things we're going to see going forward is this idea of privacy fatalism, that our privacy is just going to be taken and there's nothing we can do to stop it. It's a scary concept to think that most people will just accept things going forward. But I think we see that what privacy used to mean 50 years ago, or even growing up as kids to what privacy means now, we're having to really legislate and govern and come up with how we're going to protect people. One of the things that I did in my thesis was actually developed a new term. It's my new catchphrase, trying to make it catch on. So if you can use it, it's like fetch, if you know the movie Mean Girls. It's the idea of individuals' collective privacy. So somebody who might protect their privacy is still going to be profiled because other people give up their privacy. So while you might protect yours, someone else giving up their privacy allows algorithms to practice personifying and profiling people. So while your unique identity might be protected as GDPR in Europe or the CII in the IP law, you can say in California for protecting people's data breaches and some of the governing laws in Australia that you protect unique identifying information, that's still, the guidelines are still met, but a person might be slotted into an online archetype or a profile archetype. And so you're still being customized advertising and you're still being molded or sold to in a certain way that they know will encourage you to maybe buy more or to do certain things or to just actually change your pricing for like insurance or general behaviors online. I think that people are starting to say, oh yeah, that just happens. I can't stop it. And so they just accept it. They don't even try to change their behaviors. I think we saw this with cookie tracking also. People used to really care about cookie tracking and they would check the settings and they would block cookies. They were really vigilant about it. But over time, this idea of persuasion system design by a guy named John Fogg in 2005, that over time, people just become numb to it and they stop caring and they just accept it. And I think that's what we're seeing now is that over time, people are just accepting their privacy and less and less people are caring. And so it matters in a political sense when people are trying to show that they're making a difference with tech firms. But in a consumer setting, a lot of people don't actually do anything to protect their privacy. I often laugh that you used to see balaclavas and, and face coverings going into grocery stores, you know, to protect your facial tracking because that seemed a little weird to most people and no one wants to carry around facial tracking stickers or carry an umbrella around or walk around with trying to protect their face, people are just accepting it nowadays. I think that's something that is going to be interesting for the future is how do we protect ourselves or how do we as a society protect everyone's privacy, especially from those that don't care enough to protect their own. So that's one of the big challenges that I think is coming out of this going forward, as well as sets up a future research directions is actually looking at what public policies and what governance structures need to be in place. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, you mentioned that privacy, fatalism, individuals, collective privacy, these are really good concepts to think about as we go forward. And I guess moving yeah. forward in our discussion today, Ryan, you broadly mentioned one of the challenges coming through. What are some of the other challenges you have faced in your research, in your PhD journey? If you can maybe talk to that. 
I saw when you said that I was going to question that you might be asking, I was laughing because I think that the PhD journey, there's lots of PhD comics about it. If people don't know about phdcomics.com, I strongly encourage it because I think when you start out, you really don't feel confident about what you're doing. And so you listen to podcasts and you try and gather as much information or you come into going, yeah, I got this, no problem. No problem. But somewhere along the way, you hit that imposter syndrome that you don't feel like maybe you're as good as everyone else is doing this, or you don't know certain information. And I think also you realize that your supervisors are not your parents, that they're not the ones who are going to give you all the information and hold your hand through the whole process. Some of the really good ones will, and, and they'll help you, but they're a tool that you use. I heard the phrase once, you're the CEO of this project. And so your supervisors are a tool that you use. They're a resource for knowledge. They're a resource that you can ask, but they might not always be the best advice. And they also might not tell you about everything you need to know. And so I think that was a challenge when it happened to me that while they recommended journals I published in and said, you know, if you can do this, it'd be great. But if you can't, that's okay. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I've got the capacity. I'll do more. I'll do more. I'll do more. But even still, there's certain things that you as the student just need to discover. One of the ones is actually picking a copy editor. My copy editor, I got back 187 commas and I think 13 word changes. And that was it. And they said, you know, we won't write sentences for you for copy editing. We just fix the syntax and the rhetoric and the grammar. And I was surprised because I thought they would rewrite sentences and fix badly worded sentences. But they said that that's actually not included in a lot of copy editors. And that was a big surprise for me. Just fresh because I'm at the end. I think I was lucky that I thought of my PhD as a marathon with little sprints along the way. And so someone told me to actually do something to end your PhD day. I actually took up running to start my mornings. I am not a runner at any way, shape or form, but I started my days with running and making my bed. And I finished my days at six o'clock by actually going for a walk and for going to the gym and just doing something physically active. And I found that on days that I was great and and I felt good about my PhD, that was awesome. I finished at six and I was happy. But on days that I felt like I didn't know what I was doing and I responded to emails or read papers or questioned into the abyss, I I hit six o'clock and I gave myself that mental freedom to not carry that guilt into my evenings. So I actually got time to recover and mentally take a break away from my thesis put that yoke and burden down and do other things. Often I think we carry that home every day with us. And that's why they say your PhD is one of the loneliest things you ever do is because no one else carries that burden of your thesis like you do. It is yours. You want it to be the best you can be. I also think I was lucky, but I still fell into the trap of thinking my thesis as my baby. And so I really want it to be the best it can be. And I coddled it. And it wasn't until someone said to me, no, 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 this is just a part of who you are. At the end, let's stop worrying about it being the best it can be. Put as much effort as you can into it, but you're never going to be 100% happy with it. I actually listened to your podcast and listened to a few others where they say the exact same thing. At the end, if you know you're not going to be 100% with the result, but what you can be is 100% happy with the effort you put into it. And so that sort of changed my mindset and allowed me to overcome some of the challenges I felt. Because then I could say, I put in a solid work ethic. I put a solid day's work in. I put evenings in. I put extra effort in. So even if it might not be perfect, I'm really happy with how it turned out. Everyone says it's amazing. And I was really lucky that I've been able to win a few awards and get some accomplishments. So I think I'm doing okay. But it's not whether you win or lose. It's how you play the game. And I've been happy with the effort I put in. I think that's the greatest challenge that I went through in my PhD is getting to that point of just being happy with the effort I put into it.
Yeah, that's really fascinating and a really uh, nice way to put it. The discovery, the journey, the project being your not the only part that shapes your life. It's one part of what we do. It's not everything we do and really fascinating. And as you mentioned, uh, in my journey as well, I, just a lot of things you mentioned, I find going through that step, you know, how do you write at an academic level or writing a chapter, all these kind of things. It's a continuous it's like opening a book and just opening a new chapter every day, but you're learning something new, not about some fiction or nonfiction. It's about yourself and you're leveling up and upskilling yourself as we go along. So really fascinating. I guess moving to the latter half of our discussion today, Ryan, reading your bio, having spoken to you earlier as well, and you allude to a lot of things you're doing at different times of your life, but you mentioned a few of these already, but maybe broadly, what are some of the ways you spend your spare time in general when you take off your research hat? What are some of the things you do and how to to take away of all this research stress? I uh, laugh when about that question. I asked some of my PhD colleagues and the answers were hilarious. Some of them like, what do you do in your spare time? And they said, cry, suffer. Some said drink excessively, which I was like, whoa, okay. I asked, are you okay? And they, they just laughed and said, no, no, no it's just uh, as a joke. And I'm like, okay, Ooh, wipe my forehead. One thing I do is actually try and do something outside my thesis to help my career. I try and spend actually two or three hours a week when I hit that mental stumbling block of something that's outside my thesis. And it actually really helps. There's the joke that if you're a procrastinator, take on two projects because you can cheat. You can procrastinate on your first project with your second project. And when you get bored of your second project, you procrastinate on it with your first project. And so at the end, you end up with two projects done. I love that analogy and I very much do that. So I actually try and publish on advancing women in entrepreneurship roles, as well as women in the STEM aspects and, women, and female equality. I think that as a guy, it's important that we step up and talk about that. So it's not just women talking about it, but recognizing that actually is a really big thing that everyone needs to talk about. I also do an online internet business and I run a venture capital firm. So that keeps me pretty busy because I'm constantly reading business plans and reviewing potential investments for customers, as well as a chance to just explore concepts in real life going forward. I tried to pick up something that was screen free, which was a challenge at the beginning, especially during COVID, where when you want to socialize, you instantly turn on your Facebook or Zoom or a screen. But after looking at a computer screen all day, I didn't want to burn my eyes out. And so I actually picked up chess and going for walks to get bubble tea with a friend. But I also started doing a lot of offline things like it sounds funny, but actually adult coloring books was actually one that surprised me. I thought it seemed silly at first, but actually taking some time to stop and accomplish something, that was actually a really good thing. Something I read about in the fashion industry is dopamine addiction. They know we look at so many images and we constantly are hitting that dopamine surge, make us feel good. And so one of the things that we want to do is search and search and find and find and, and keep that dopamine pump going. But we never get the serotonin of accomplishment. And PhDs, marathon that lasts for so long that how do you, at the end of the day, say, good job? Like, what's the metric? Some people say, if you write a page a day, you're doing great. Sometimes you get clear deadlines or clear finish points. But I actually tried to think of things that I could accomplish to actually have that completion and feel good about it. So I actually started doing adult coloring books, as well as setting up uh, marathons for movies. And it wasn't just saying, oh, I'm going to go watch a movie tonight. It was saying, oh, I'm going to watch this movie tonight between eight and 10 o'clock. And by scheduling it, when it got to eight o'clock, I felt guilt-free about watching TV or watching a movie. And when it finished, I'm like, good job me. I planned and I accomplished it. And I know it's something silly watching TV or watching a movie, but, or even just meeting up friends to go for bubble tea or go for a cocktail. But by doing that, I felt like I accomplished something. And so at the end of the day, I felt really good about myself. 
The other one was actually, I made my bed every day. I read about jo Sir John Tilly, who in World War I was a famous Navy general. He's the guy that we all make our bed for. Why do you make your bed every day? It's because of him. And he said in World War I, when things were really bad, sometimes he'd come home and the only good thing that happened was that he made his bed that day. I thought PhD sometimes is going to be hard and I started doing it. And it's true. Every day I come home and I see my bed made and I actually do feel really good about it. I'm like, I accomplished something today. My PhD might not have had anything happen, but uh, I feel really good about it. I sing in a choir. I do adult coloring books. I try and meet friends for chess and drinks. I go for walks. I go to the gym. I tried taking up knitting and making clothing, but that was too much project-based. And I figured, okay, don't take on too many projects when you already got a major PhD project. So I took a few simple things. That's really interesting. And I think there's quite a lot of avenues to venture into and, you know, keep yourself occupied, which is really good. Each one of them sounds really interesting. I guess, uh, Ryan, my final question for today is, you come to this journey now, you're almost about to submit your thesis. You alluded to a potential future direction, but probably not the best question to ask a completing PhD student. Where do you see your work heading? What interests you more in this research and academic space next? I think when you're finishing your PhD, you're about to jump off a cliff, right? And it's a little, little scary, but what happens next? I am not entirely sure, like everybody who's about to finish the PhD or even midway through or when you start the PhD journey, what the future will hold. I've been able to secure a few research projects and I told myself for about two years after my PhD to still live in that contract uncertainty limbo that comes with doing a PhD. I'm from Canada and so I'm living in Australia. So I have a student visa and I can try and get the global talent or PR and those kind of questions. But I told myself two years time limbo to figure out will you actually take off and get a permanent position or is this not something that the industry or the academic will enjoy or you're not publishing at the level you need to or you're not the level you need to be to be an academic. Having that two-year milestone in my brain makes it a little bit easier to handle. And at this point, yeah, trying to apply for positions for postdocs as well as le lecture B positions. I've been really lucky that I have been actually lecturing and been a unit coordinator for a few different big classes. Likewise, I've been doing fellowship applications and looking at private fellowships that I could use in an industry context, as well as things within the academic world that will keep me going point forward with it. Somebody told me, you just apply, 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 and see what pops up. So I kind of doing a 50-50 split between Monday, Wednesday, Friday, applying for jobs and Tuesday, Thursday, doing research papers, publish or perish. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. It's a time that we have to, like you said, you're not sure where you're heading, but, and I agree with the advice you've been given. It's a numbers game in a lot of things. You just apply, something might stick, and then you take it from there, move on to your next journey. Ryan, I'd like to thank you so much for sharing us your interesting insights about your work, what you've done so far, and we'd like to wish you all the best in your next step of your journey as well. So thanks again for joining us on Halftime Scholars. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here and to share and try and help future PhD students. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Halftime Scholars. Let us know what you think of the show and leave us a rating on Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast. We'll see you next month on our next episode.